everyone, this is Amanda Borshaldan, and welcome to Times Will Tell, the Times of Israel's weekly podcast. This week, I'm speaking with author and scholar James McGrath, a professor in New Testament language and literature at Butler University in Indianapolis. He has just published a new book called What Jesus Learned from Women. The book is an interesting hybrid of classical scholarship and imaginative historical fiction as McGrath works out just how a selection of women influenced Jesus' thinking. And of course, he starts by telling us about Jesus' mother. Enjoy. Hi, James. Thank you for joining me. Where am I finding you today? I am in Indianapolis, in the state of Indiana, in the United States. I know that Indianapolis is not uh, quite as world famous as some other U.S. cities are, but it is about three hours southeast of Chicago, if that helps anyone. But it's in what's known as the Midwest. (laughs) I actually went to high school in Indianapolis, so I know exactly where it is. And I know the university that you're affiliated with, Butler University, where I played in the youth orchestra when I was a teenager. But we're here today to speak about your new book, What Jesus Learned from Women, which is very, very interesting to me as a Jew and a Jewish woman. First of all, could you please explain to me who was the historical Jesus? Absolutely. The historical Jesus is the effort of historians to reconstruct this first century uh, rabbi, an individual that at least some of his followers and maybe he himself thought might be the Jewish Messiah and really needs to be disentangled. One of the things that historians try to do is to disentangle this figure from what we might call the Jesus of Christianity, at least historically, a Jesus that has been uh, interpreted and reinterpreted through lenses of Christian doctrine, uh, has been elevated to a divine status, and things of that sort. And so the effort to recover the historical Jesus really is tracing what has become not just a separate, but sometimes a diametrically opposed and very different world religion back to its source, which is found within Judaism. Right. And in fact, in your introduction, you raised the question of whether Jesus can learn even because Jesus is considered divine. Yes. And that's an issue that one has to tackle in some way, shape or form, or at least mention and uh, try to (laughs) reassure some people about, because there are people who think of Jesus as essentially a divine figure and I don't know about you, but I think most people, if they imagine a divine figure walking around on earth, they don't need to learn things from the people they encounter. They know more than any of them and maybe all of them combined. And that is the assumption that a lot of Christians have about Jesus. And I think partly because of that assumption, the idea that Jesus learned from anyone, uh, never mind from any specific people, is something that some Christians find challenging. And yet they're are not only things in historic Christian creeds that affirm that Jesus was human and if you can't be human and not learn, right? But there are also things in the, in the uh, Christian scriptures that mention him, for instance, growing in wisdom. That's learning too. For sure. And as you also mentioned in your book, he was an educator himself and every educator is a lifelong learner. So the historical Jesus, you write at one point, 
point in your book could be considered a first century Jewish feminist. Can you elaborate on that slightly? Certainly. And I think I, I, I think I put it even slightly more cautiously than that, that you know, if, he, if we were to call him a feminist at all, it would be a first century Jewish feminist, and it would be important to put it that way. No first century individual was a feminist by modern standards or in the modern sense of the term, and they don't use the term. And so we're being anachronistic. We're using our language to refer to ancient realities. But if one is to say that Jesus at least had some critical things to say about the patriarchal culture that was the norm in a lot of traditional societies, it was as somebody who, on the one hand, listened to and learned from his female contemporaries, and so had a broader perspective, as some men today do, but not all, uh, not all to the extent that we should. But putting him in his historical context is crucially important because leaving out the first century misses a lot, but so does leaving out the fact that he was a Jewish feminist. Because one thing that really troubles me in the history of a Christian interpretation of the New Testament is the tendency for Christians to elevate Jesus at the expense of his Jewish conversation partners from his time. Uh, even those, even those that he agreed with, but especially those that he disagreed with. And so emphasizing that to the extent that Jesus had positive views of women, learned from women, did things that not all men in a patriarchal society do, it was as a Jewish man who learned things from both male and female Jewish contemporaries, as would be true of a modern feminist, you wouldn't need to go into this much detail, but both because of the historical distance and because of some of the Christian doctrines about Jesus as a divine figure, one has to, one has to not just emphasize, but maybe even overemphasize this point in order to make sure that it, it isn't missed. To contextualize essentially that mm. he was, first of all, a man, and second of all, a Jewish man living yes. at this time period. Exactly. Now, you too are a man and you are taking on work that is uh, largely been relegated or at least uh, chosen by women. Feminist theory, reading feminism into ancient texts. How did you take this project on? What was your uh, spur? Right. Right. Well, first let me say I took it on as a man with some fear and trepidation and a lot of caution and solicited a lot of feedback and input uh, from women I respect as scholars and women I respect as uh, things like Christian clergy and as uh, oh, one woman in particular who I respect as my wife. So uh, a number of people who read the manuscript because it's easy for men to write about women or anyone to write about any group, any category uh, that they are not uh, themselves a part of, and to get things horribly wrong or misrepresent. On the other hand, there is a tendency, as you said, to relegate this to a topic that women write about, right? And I, I, I want to make sure we come back to that, because I think that's, that's one of the things that actually motivated me. Uh, the original spark, though, uh, let me say this first, was a student who was looking for an honors thesis topic and was struggling with the question of whether it's possible to be a Christian and a feminist, and if so, how? Because as with Christianity, as with Judaism, as with so many uh, modern religions, we have texts that were shaped in a different time and place, and often there are patriarchal assumptions in there. 
And those sometimes seem like a hurdle for people who are trying to find a way of expressing their faith that is, is feminist and is egalitarian. And so in the end, she ended up working on a completely different topic, but our conversations inspired me to uh, begin thinking along these lines. One of the things that happened as I was working on the book was that I found it took no effort at all to do something that I think is potentially a really positive thing, but it's also something that troubled me, which was to get really good representation of female scholars in the bibliography. In fact, I mean, I don't think I was strictly necessary. Somebody else could have written this book, but I don't think any of the male scholars that I cite were absolutely of crucial importance, right? Uh, women had everything to offer and sometimes had things that I wasn't finding anywhere else. And that illustrates the problem, right? It, which is that oftentimes feminist scholarship, uh, women in the Bible are topics that are left for women to write about. And then women read those books and male scholars and male uh, religious practitioners ignore what they have to say. And so I think it's, it's important that that be challenged. And that was something I was hoping to do, not just through the book and its focus, but also through how I approached the book and uh, whose voices were heard in the book. Hi, it's Sarah Tuttle Singer from the Times of Israel. Come join our community and support fast and fair independent journalism. You can sign up with the link at the bottom of every single article on the site. So the book is divided into 12 chapters. 12 is a very important number, both in Judaism and in Christianity. The first chapter is an introduction. The last chapter is a conclusion. And then there are 10 chapters dedicated to 10 different episodes, not necessarily 10 different women. In some of the chapters, you have more than one woman. But what I found just fascinating is that you began the, each chapter with basically what I would call midrash. You began it mm -hmm. with a retelling of the story in a different kind of way, inserting different people's voices and basically imagining scenarios that help fill out the scriptures. So explain a little bit about this process. Yes. Uh, well, there, there are a number of reasons why I start with what we might call you know, midrash, historical fiction. Um, one, one of them is, as somebody who's written academic books, has come to realize the books we write if we write them in a very scholarly way, are not always very interesting for uh, some readers. And so having something that could make the scholarship just come al alive a bit more and explore it. Another reason that's there is because one thing that is a problem in the field that I'm, I've been working in in this book in particular is that oftentimes women's voices are neglected in our ancient sources. And it would be very easy for a historian to use that as an excuse for saying, well, the sources don't give us enough information, so we can't really say anything. And that perpetuates the silencing of these ancient women. And so filling in the gaps by drawing on what we know specifically and then things that we know in general is, I think, the key method in doing feminist historical study. But one thing that I discovered as I did more and more of this was that I really do believe that trying to narrate our historical reconstructions provides a really rigorous, a surprisingly rigorous way of testing them. And I mentioned this in the book. There were times when I tried to tell somebody's story and 
It's like, this is not, this is not flowing. This is not making sense. I can't imagine these people having this conversation. And it forced me to go back and say, okay, well then what's wrong with the way I'm reconstructing these events? And when we don't do that, when we don't turn it into a narrative, a story, it's very easy for us to just put details on a page and think, yeah, it sounds historically plausible. So it actually, it actually forced me to, to think harder than I might have otherwise about some of the details of my historical reconstruction. So you begin with uh, uh, every Jewish man has a Jewish mother, and the Jewish mother is very central to the Jewish man's life and vice versa. In fact, in Hebrew, we have a, a nice expression, Hagoon shel ima, ima's little genius. And you begin the book fittingly with Mary. Now, what I found at first really odd is that you have her writing a letter because you would think, wow, would she actually be literate? Could she be writing a letter to her female cousin? Is this even possible? And then later on in the chapter, you explain a little bit more about literacy and women. So talk about this, please. Yes, and this actually connects not just with Mary and that first chapter, but with, with the historical Jesus as well in an interesting way. Uh, I, I struggled with the question of where best to start, but I couldn't start with anyone other than Jesus' mother. That's the female influence that in any person's life we can be most certain of, right? Unless, unless, unless the mother tragically dies before having a chance to bring them up or something like that. And so she had to be the place to start. And as I thought about how I wanted to offer her perspective and tell her story, giving her a chance to have a conversation with another female character that appears in the New Testament seemed one of the ways to go. And something that we have in some Christian artwork depicting uh, sometimes Mary and her mother, sometimes Mary and her mother and Jesus, is Mary either reading a book or Mary's mother holding a book or things like that. Things that are clearly, in the way they're depicted in the, the paintings, historically an anachronistic, but are also very striking, right? Because it wasn't always a given that women had the same opportunities for education that men did and things of that sort. And so I wondered whether this might reflect some awareness of access to education, because it's not as though most men were educated in some formal way, right? It's that the few educational opportunities of any sort mostly went to men and not to women. And so things like writing a letter were very specific skills uh, in the New Testament, we have a lot of letters attributed to an author named uh, Paul. And at the end of one of them, there is a greeting from somebody named Tertius who says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you. And it's like, I thought Paul was writing this letter. But of course, he's the author, but he's not the writer. And those things were much more separate in the ancient world than they are today. And so that Mary could have dictated a letter is absolutely historically possible. Right? There is nothing that even requires that she have any kind of formal education for that to be possible. And we have those kinds of documents from ancient women. The question of whether even Jesus was literate in the sense of that kind of scribal literacy, whether he learned to read and write in a formal way, is, is one that has been asked and has to be addressed. Uh, to the extent that we have words attributed to him in the New Testament, they are written by others according to the texts that we have and according to the traditions that we have. And so Jesus as well illustrates that formulating words in a, in a literate way, we might say, but in a, in a fluent, in a compelling way is something that doesn't require writing. And this was even more true in ancient cultures where 
oral communication predominated. And so whether it was Mary or Jesus, the spoken word was, was central and dominant. And if Jesus was articulate, he probably got some of that through, through his upbringing and his family surroundings. And there's no reason that both of them couldn't have had their words actually written down by other people. So the uh, New Testament, as we call it, is made up of four Gospels that have been canonized. But there are other sources that have been floating around, even very early sources, that you drew upon. And in one of the chapters, uh, Jesus's grandmother's chapter, you draw upon the Gospel of the Nazarenes, correct? Uh, so that that one comes up in... I, it may get a mention of both the Mary chapter and this one. And then there's also one that's known as the uh, Infancy Gospel of James that has some stories about uh, Mary's mother, who's known in Christian tradition as uh, St. Anne, but that's, you know, Anna or Hannah, right? So is a good Jewish name. What <laughs> is the dating on this uh, Gospel right. of the Nazarenes or the Infancy, yeah. Infancy Gospel? Yeah. And... That can be very hard to pin down, uh, probably reflect, at the very least, uh, sources, if not the works themselves, that may go back to something like the second century. So there, there's no sense in which I'm trying to suggest that these are earlier than the canonical Gospels, but they are not so significantly later that we should expect that all historical memory had sort of vanished and that nothing was continuing to influence the way people were uh, even telling fictional stories about Jesus and perhaps making up stories about people that they wish they had more stories about. Even when people do that, if they know things, if there are traditions that have come down to them, they will often incorporate them because it makes their, their fiction more plausible. And so I'm not arguing that these documents, any more than the canonical gospels, are straightforward historical accounts or predominantly historical or anything like that. I'm looking for things that might reflect some memory and some tradition that got passed down. And I think there, there may be some. Really fascinating. And what I liked about this as well is that it gives this woman, this grandmother, a name. And in so many cases, these uh, little vignettes that are found in the New Testament, many of the women aren't named at all. Yes, and sometimes women that don't get named in the New Testament do actually acquire names. I think people just... yeah. It, the mostly male preachers and interpreters of the scriptures eventually got tired of saying uh, the woman that Jesus met at the well in Samaria or <laughs> that woman in you know the vicinity of Tyre. And so it's like, yeah, okay, I think, I think we can come up with something. But the fact that it's missing in our earliest sources oftentimes is frustrating. But I was struck by a number of things, particularly in the, that infancy gospel of James, uh, sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium of James, that... It, it mentions uh, some interesting names, right, for Mary's parents, but also co- there, there are traditions that connect Mary with, and her parents with, uh, Sepphoris, uh, Tsipuri, in the vicinity of Nazareth, uh, or I should say Nazareth was in the vicinity of this major city, exactly. right, at the time, but of course, <laughs> now the, the shoe is on the other foot, as it were. <laughs> but there's no obvious reason why that tradition would have arisen, Right? If it didn't reflect any kind of historical knowledge of the location and of, of maybe things that actually happened. One of the things that has puzzled New Testament scholars is the fact that that city and many others 
don't get mentioned. They're not a focus of Jesus' activity. He seems to focus much more on the uh, some of the major towns, but then also on on villages. And so, what does that tell us about him? But precisely because it's not a place mentioned in the New Testament, it's not a place name that later Christian authors, usually writing further away from where these events happened, are likely to have simply come up with. And so that's one reason why I think, you know, maybe there's something to this. It's at least intriguing and worth exploring. And so I tried to tried to do that. Yeah, I really like the idea of the grandparents living in the major city, quote unquote, which is just a glorious site to visit today in Israel. Mm -hmm. The archaeology is beautiful. The mosaics are stunning. You can really get a sense of the wealth and the culture that would have been there during Jesus's life. And then you go back to Nazareth, which was a podunk little town. You know, it would have had the same complex that people from Indianapolis have. Yeah, we're three and a half hours from Chicago, you know. But but yeah, really fascinating how you brought that out. Uh, Now, there are several women who are well known as being historical turning points in the ministry of Jesus. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't actually know about them. So one of them is what you call the classic example of the Syrophoenician woman who changed Jesus' mind. So please tell us that story and why is she significant? Yes, so there's a a fascinating, uh, sometimes in certain respects, puzzling story where Jesus, for whatever reason, gets away from his usual area of activity and is in the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, so is is in Phoenicia. Is is he extending his reach or is he trying to get away from uh, too much attention that he's getting in certain areas and some of the authorities are taking an interest in him, we're not sure. But at any rate, the story tells us that he's in this area where there is a, a dominant population that is not Jewish and that a woman approaches him, who's from that region, asking him to do something about her daughter. We don't know exactly what uh, kind of ailment she had. Uh, ailments in ancient, the ancient world are attributed to demons, and so it's it's posed in those terms. But it's basically a mother advocating for her daughter, and Jesus speaks to her in a way that only a person motivated by Christian piety would try to say is not rude, right? Basically says, yeah, well, look, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs, right? And, you know, even if you imagine it being toned down, said so it's like, well, it's household dogs. It's not the, you know, it's not the street dogs. It's like, if you compare a person to a dog of any sort, it is dehumanizing and it's insulting, right? It's not a compliment, right? How bad of an insult it was, I didn't need to worry about too much in the book. And Christians have often just been really, really uncomfortable with Jesus saying something like this. And so they've tried to say that he's testing her or other things. But the woman has this fantastic comeback, right? She says, well, you know, even the dogs get to eat the scraps that fall from the children's table, right? So willfully depriving dogs of the stuff that falls on the floor that the children are not going to eat, like not even letting them get scraps, you know, that's not prioritizing the children. That's just cruelty to animals. And it's it's a very clever on-the-spot reply, and it clearly made an impact on Jesus because the gospel authors told this story. And there's a lot of debate about whether it actually shows Jesus changing his mind, precisely because of concerns about Christian doctrine and what it says about Jesus if he 
held negative views of other people and smoke, spoke in that way and things like that. But to the extent that some people are okay with that possibility, this is often the story that comes to mind as the example. And it's the one that I thought of when I started thinking about this book idea. When that student approached me and said, what could I work on? I said, well, lots of people have written about Jesus teaching women. And so there's, there's a lot there. Fewer people have said anything. What if, what if we reverse that? And so I started thinking and discovered that the same thing that we sometimes see in that story, we can see in others. But that's the one where, where it seems the most dramatic. And, and the, the, the woman in the story, uh, the mother, right, go, you know, advocating for her child come, comes off better than Jesus does in, in the story, at least if we, if we read it in a way that's not, not trying to defend Jesus' reputation at all, all costs. That's really fascinating. Now, the final woman that we'll discuss is one that is generally considered a prostitute, a notoriously bad girl, Mary Magdalene. Tell us a little bit about how perhaps she's been misperceived. Yeah. So she has been turned into a lot of things, right? Um, Both in ancient times, not our early sources, but certainly going back to... Uh, the early centuries of the church, and then also very recently. On the one hand, there was an identification that was made in the process of Christian preaching between a number of women in the New Testament. And so Mary Magdalene gets blended together with, among others, a woman who is said to be a sinful woman who comes in when Jesus is dining at somebody's house and is crying at his feet and then uh, wipes his feet with her hair. And even then, right, it's noteworthy that all these male interpreters have said, okay, this woman is said to be a sinner. Why, why is the assumption that she is a prostitute, right? Why is it not that, you know, she is a, a widow who has had to be like a ruthless business person in order to, you know, survive in this patriarchal society? Why is it, you know, why is it that particular thing that is uh, explored? But there's no evidence in the story itself that that woman is Mary Magdalene. And so there's there's been a lot of uh, misrepresentation. And then on the other hand, there have been uh, novels and movies where you know, Mary is the love interest of Jesus, yeah. maybe also as a prostitute or reformed prostitute or something like that. Sometimes it's both of these. But you get this whole idea of Jesus and Mary, you know, perhaps being married and other things. And so even then, you know, when that's done, it's sometimes done, I think, out of a a supposedly uh, feminist motivation to not have Mary misrepresented as a prostitute, but it's still making making Mary this person who's significant because you know maybe she's the bearer of Jesus' offspring, who then end up in other parts of the world, and you get the whole Da Vinci Code scenario if uh, people are familiar with that. <laughs> and so I really was trying to say, what's there in our earliest sources, you know, that might explain why this woman is is both so fascinating, but also comes to be misrepresented. And so what's the answer? Yes, I, I wasn't sure if I was <laughs> talking too long. I didn't want to just jump there. But I think, I think she's, she's really somebody that Jesus connected with. I think that as somebody who suffered from either more severe or multiple ailments that uh, was healed somehow through her connection with Jesus, experienced healing, probably had an influence on him. Uh, we're told that she was among people who uh, followed with Jesus, who supported his activity. And 
when she's mentioned in some of our earliest Christian sources after the New Testament, there are efforts to sort of denigrate her, but it's much more that you know, she's a woman and would Jesus have entrusted his, his secret teachings and things to, to this woman? And one doesn't have to view those stories as historical, right? In order to realize that they are nonetheless reflecting a debate that must have been going on about Mary and her authority, right? When other Gnostic texts, as they're sometimes called, appeal to various apostles as authority figures, they do so because these were authority figures, right? Even if they're making things up and attributing them to them. And so the debates about Mary Magdalene suggest that she was recognized as a leader in the movement after, you know, after the death of Jesus. And when it comes to what, what Jesus learned sort of from and through his contact with her, I think that healing is also important, right? One of the ways that she's sometimes denigrated is through the connection that modern people make between demons and maybe, you know, either what we would call psychological illnesses and psychiatric conditions or, you know, mental illness, things like that, or just people behaving in very, very odd ways, right? Whereas it was to demons that pretty much all ailments and afflictions were attributed. And so the fact that Mary said to have had seven demons that were afflicting her and then they are driven out suggests that she was, she was suffering badly from something, but it doesn't necessarily indicate anything uh, that we would associate with madness or strange behavior or the kinds of things that immediately come to mind for modern people thinking about demons, demon possession. Uh, they've seen, they've seen a lot of movies and uh, other things that have influenced them. And that too is not reflective of that first century context. So interesting. I fully recommend that everyone check out your book, What Jesus Learned from Women. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Really a pleasure. It's, it's been wonderful. Uh, it's been delightful. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Times Will Tell and a special thanks to TLV1 Studios for sound production help. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Times Will Tell on all podcast platforms. (laughs) 